you know, once I, once I got into the program, you know, and, and felt that joy, I started feeling from, you know, some of that 12 step work and stuff, right. I thought, you know, this is, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. Right. So, you know, I waited about three years and, and that's when I went back to school and eventually got a degree in social work. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of courageous individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Rick, Ryan and Damien are here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to OurCollectiveJourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Hey, good day. Welcome to the Plugged In Media Network and another episode of From Darkness to Life, an OCJ podcast. I am Rick Armstrong. I am here with Nathan Davis today and Ryan Oscar and our special guest, Mark Codlin. How's everybody doing today? Doing good, man. Doing great. I'm doing okay. No, just, I'm doing good. Just okay. I'm tired. Um, had a long week, lots of busyness at work, and uh, just playing catch up. But glad to be here today. Best part of the week. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, it is. Right. <laughs> Sit around. They turn the mics on. We start acting professional. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Somebody left us unsupervised again. Yeah, it's a good thing we weren't recording like two minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess on that note, uh, Mark, welcome, welcome to the OCJ From Darkness to Life podcast. Thanks, man. Uh, pleasure to have you here. You've got a pretty solid relationship with my friend Ryan. Yeah. Not that many people would admit to that, but <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> I got Mark fooled. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Ah, uh, well, <clears throat> I'm just trying to think where to begin here. Uh, you Wherever know. you want, man. <laughs> Been 13 years clean and sober. Um, you know, I'm a social worker. I'm a dad. Um, you know, I <laughs> do a lot of different things. I write. I absolutely. You know, um, m- most of all, I. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm really, really nervous. <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> At about the 12 minute mark, you'll notice that you get comfortable and you just start talking. You oh, forget man. about the mic. It's and just like, else, I, it's so weird. This, this is <laughs> first time I've ever done anything like this, but yeah, no, I uh, just have the day off today. Thought I'd come down with you guys and nice. talk about recovery a little bit, you know? Cool. Yeah, for sure. I know when, when I moved to this community in 2015, Mark was one of the first guys I met in recovery. And, uh, I've, I've spoke about this lots before that it was suggested to, find people that have a message or something that you want in recovery. And Mark had that serenity and that, that message of solution that I, I really latched onto. And right. that's how I got to know Mark and just kind of hung out with this character for the last six years. So yeah, something I've been working on. It's the, the serenity part and the, the solution part, but you know, it's, it's not always been like that, you know, especially, especially in sobriety too, right? It's not always like that. Um, I know for myself, uh, over the past 13 years of sobriety, like it's been great, been clean and sober. I haven't wanted to use or drink, but, uh, you know, sometimes that other stuff comes up, right? The living stuff. And, and that's where the struggle's been for me, especially within the last year. So, yeah. Yeah. I think we talk about it a lot in this room, right? The, um, drugs and alcohol not being the problem, but the solution. And when you remove that, you're still, you're still left with everything and all, all the other effects, right? Yeah. 
for sure. I know a lot of the suggestions I hear early on is, you know, in the 12-step programs that we some of us attend, it's the living life on life's terms, right? Where life still, even though we get into recovery, life still keeps happening. The world keeps turning. The world doesn't change just because we got into recovery, right? So we got to start figuring out the ways to deal with life. Right. And uh, yeah, it's it's quite a quite a journey, but I know... A lot of the times that I hang out with you, Mark, we have some of the best conversations around what life is like, right? It's not all recovery talk. So many people I find, they think you get clean and sober, you get into recovery and then life is boring. Right. And you just talk recovery all day long and that's all you do, right? And it's so not what happens in real life once no. you get into recovery. It's it's an amazing ride. It is an amazing ride. I mean, <clears throat> one of the best things for me since I've hit recovery is, is having a, a daughter in recovery, having a, a child in recovery. Um, I, have, <clears throat> I have three daughters and... Um, my youngest is the one that, um, we, we had during, um, in, in recovery, well, mm -hmm. two different moms, but, um, being able to raise her and learn so much from her, you know, it's, that's been the, the, the biggest gift, right? Is, is being part of her life, watching her learning stuff and, um, you know, finally being a dad the way I'm supposed to be a dad, right? Rather than, you know, what I was before when I was back in the day, right? So that's, that's a huge one, um. For me right now, especially, right? She's nine. So it's like the best time. With yeah. Her, you know, so. that's, that's such a cool piece. And I know you guys both have kids, right? And I know I feel the same way. You know, I, I always look back to the way I used to parent or the lack of parenting skills I used to have when I was in active addiction, because I was either gone working and drinking on the road. Or when I'd come home, I was so hailed out all the time, hung over drinking or whatever, right? Lining up the next party and was just a real poor excuse of a parent and I own that these days and yeah. but yes parenting and recovery is amazing yeah, it is I mean <clears throat> I do have there is still some repercussions with my other children from from when I was using and drinking right like and, and the way I parented then because I, I you know I'm still experiencing some issues well they're experiencing some issues mm -hmm. because you know of things like me not being around, things like that, right? So, so those have been a those have been a big challenge, right? And trying to to make up for that now, you know, and and, and trying to be a parent to two older kids, right? Who, you know, I wasn't around for when when we when they were younger, you know. So that's that's been a bit of a challenge, for sure. What do you think about that, Rick? What do you you have kids too, and how do you parent now that you're in recovery? Big difference. <clears throat> yeah. Well, yes and no. I guess like I don't. I had a situation yesterday, actually, that one of my kids got into trouble at school. And, uh, and I remember like, as I was going home to deal with it, talking myself down, right? Like, don't go in there like old Rick, just hot and pissed <laughs> off. Right. And, and I remember thinking, just stay calm, be cool, be collected, you know, get his side of the story. I'll like try to empathize with him, figure out what's going on before I, and, and I mean, that was like a 15 minute conversation in my head and Drove up to the house, walked in door, and as soon as I closed the door to the bedroom, I'm pissed off and I'm hot. Like, despite all of the prep going into it, right, I still revert back to those old characters. And I was there for about five minutes, you know, just giving them, giving them shit, really. And then I could, the difference is now, I guess I caught myself and I'm like, okay, back, back this up, like take a couple steps back and. And I would calm down. And, and the big thing is, is like, I apologized. I acknowledge that, you know, I'm like, I'm sorry, dude, I came in hot. I, this isn't how I wanted this to go. 
and just be honest, right? Just be honest and have an honest conversation and be like, okay, I'm sorry. I've overreacted. Maybe. I don't even know. Like, I don't even know the context of what I'm dealing with yet. I just came in hot. So I need to collect myself. I'm sorry. And then, and then we had a conversation as opposed to just a one way me shitting on him. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, and it changes the context. And so, you know, I still, I still go there. I still have a natural tenant. Like, I think that's my character flaw. Like that's who I am. It's in me. Right. And, and I still go there despite all the work, despite the years of sobriety, despite everything, I still have a natural, like I, I, I joke about it all the time. My natural condition is my natural state is I'm an asshole. Like I know that it takes conscious effort for me not to be that. Right. <laughs> and so parenting's the same way, right? My natural state is to be what it is. And, and now you just got to work your way back and, and try to deal with it more appropriately. And on the level that has a positive outcome for everybody. Right. Cause right. at the end of the day, I need that kid to know I love him. Yeah. I need to know that I'm always going to be on his side. I'm always going to have his back. Right. And, and the big thing for me is I can't kick the shit out of myself for that five minutes, right? right? That five minutes before I catch myself. Cause if I get, if I go down that rabbit hole and I let myself beat myself up for it, that that's where disaster strikes. Right. Cause I can live in the guilt and shame of that five minutes for days and sometimes catastrophically. And that's a wonderful thing about recovery is that <clears throat> redemption piece to be able to, to say, I'm sorry to put the ego aside and to, to be able to look at that kind of stuff. I mean, that's stuff I've never been able to do before. That was stuff I was always running from, right? Yeah. That's why I was using, and, and I mean, you know, I didn't want to deal with that stuff, right? <clears throat> I didn't want to be wrong, you know? No, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think I knew I was always, like, even even looking back, right? I knew I was wrong. I knew I was an asshole, but I'd be damned if I was going to admit it or confront it, right? right. right. Yeah. And I know, you know, with both you and with with you, I say that like everyone can see it, but you know, <laughs> having this circle of friends in recovery has been one of the, that's just another one of those amazing gifts where I can, I can remember ample times where I've talked to you, you know, or I've talked to you, Rick, and I'm just getting to know Nathan, but I know just from talking to you and knowing your brother, knowing Damien so well, that we're all kind of cut from the same cloth in that aspect where we can actually phone each other at any time and bounce our crazy ideas or or these, you know, resentments that are building up in us, we can bounce anything off each other and get that, you know, outside perspective from somebody else. Like we did it yesterday. You phoned me, Rick, and talked to, am I crazy for thinking this? And, you know, we went through that whole situation with your son and I'm like, no, I would be in the exact same mindset you're in. Right. And it's not, it's not one of those uh, kind of malicious moments where you want to go in there, like you said, guns blazing and old Rick was showing up right now. For some reason, I'm thinking of Miley Cyrus wrecking ball. That's all I can hear in my head while you're telling that story. Right? It's your theme song, but I don't know if that's the visual I want to portray. <laughs> <laughs> but no, and having those moments where you can actually phone someone. Cause I know for me, my, you talked about defects of character and my crazy addicted brain still throws these wild ideas out there that this is a good thing to do. Yeah. And that's where having these trusted friends and trusted people that know what we're going through, it's, it's worth its weight in gold to be able to bounce that off somebody else. Yeah. As much as, you know, we, the awareness that we get through this program and doing the work, I think it, it creates this double-edged sort of awareness, right? Once, once you, once you're aware, 
You can't be unaware. And sometimes you'd rather be because it's easier, but um, it it's like you it's it's hard to catch well it's not hard to catch yourself it's 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 just shitty sometimes when you're like oh man i'm going down that rabbit hole again right and it's it's both a blessing and a curse because it's easy for me to fall back and kick the shit out of myself for going there because i'm conscious that i'm there but it's also a blessing because i can catch myself and not go any further down that rabbit hole right right so it's and then process your way back out of that rabbit hole but like i I love you to death for those well all you guys right i mean to have the opportunity to call ryan and go like hey dude i think i'm about to lose my mind on somebody am i justified here because i've i've learned to not trust myself too right Mm -hmm. i've learned to not trust that first instinct because nine times out of ten it's wrong Mm mm-hmm but like yesterday it was right, yeah. you know, and it was like, no man, you should be pissed off. That was wrong. And I'm like, okay, for sure. Now yeah, I'm going to pour some fuel on this fire. Thanks Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure that's how it went, but it was more, let's uh, just maybe reframe it and go at it from a different angle <laughs> without the Jerry can. <laughs> yeah. We were talking about that this morning. We can't always believe everything we think. Yeah. You know? We got to run it by other people. We got to, you know, question what we're thinking, right? Cause those old, those old ways of thinking can come up, you know? Mm-hmm. Those old filters, right? Those old ways of dealing with things. And, yeah. I mean, I think that's just human, right? And I think that's something we're going to be working on for the rest of our lives, right? And I think that's okay, though, you know, because like you said, like with the redemption piece, being able to apologize, you know, where we where we go wrong and to admit that, right? And that's, that's the most important thing because, I mean, that's where I've gotten the most trouble is, is, is never apologizing, just carry on forward, mm-hmm. hurting people, walking away, <laughs> burning it to the ground, right? <laughs> for sure. And I think... Uh, we talk about that lots in here and it's, you know, lots of these little um, phrases pop up in my, in my mind when I hear this conversation and one of them is first thought wrong. And I, I almost live by that nowadays because the first thought that pops into my mind is usually from the old mindset and how would the old Brian have reacted to this? And Mm -hmm. you said it best just now, like that's what got me to where I was at the end of my run was thinking and behaving that way. So it's been a huge learning curve and it is a process. I think it'll, you're, you're exactly right. This is something we're going to have to do for the rest of our lives. And yeah. I'm okay with that because life's gotten a lot better since I started doing it this way. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's putting down the, putting down the drugs, putting down the drink and then dealing with life. Right. It's, uh, I mean, my, my whole life, right. Everybody else I knew was, <clears throat> you know, learning how to like all my, you know, normal friends or whatever, they're all learning how to cope with life. Right. Like they're dealing with death properly. They're, they're grieving, they're doing all that kind of stuff. And I was hiding from all that stuff. I was running from all that stuff. So it's like, you know, once I stop, you know, now I, now I got to learn how to deal, deal with that stuff and I'm still learning. Right. You know, and just this summer, you know, it's, it's been a rough year during COVID for me. Like I, um, you know, I went through a lot of stuff. Like I, uh, you know, I was in a relationship that didn't work out. And then, you know, I found myself, you know, sleeping on a friend's couch, you know, starting over again, starting life. And it just got to me, you know, those nights alone by myself, I was starting to, you know, think these horrible, dark thoughts, right? I was going down this road, you know, um, then the next day I would just kind of, you know, limp through the day. And, and, and I talked to a lot of people and I was, you know, doing, doing everything I was learning, I learned in recovery, but it just wasn't, it wasn't letting up eh? mm-hmm. and it was just getting worse and worse. And then just one night, you know, this, uh, this thought came to my brain, right? Like, why don't you just end it? Yeah. You know? And, you know, I called a friend of mine and, 
and thank God she just, and I, I, I couldn't think of what to do. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I just keep having these thoughts. It's not that I want to do this, but these thoughts are here. Right. And this is coming from somebody who has all the training. Yeah. 13 years in recovery. Yeah. 13 years in recovery and all the things that we're supposed to be doing. Right. And yeah. you still have those thoughts. Right. And, and the big thing was too, is, you know, I, I am a social worker. I work, you know, with, with individuals that, uh, you know, with addiction and mental health issues and stuff. And, you know, and, and I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, I can't go to work like this. I can't, what, what am I doing here? And I felt like a complete fraud, you yes. know, in, in some ways, right? And, uh, you know, call up my friend. She's like, you got to go to your doctor, right? And it's just, I haven't seen my doctor for anything forever, right? I'm thinking, that's the last, my doctor. <laughs> Do I still have a doctor? Yeah, yeah, right? My doctor, you know. He doesn't even live here anymore. <laughs> and so, you know, a good thing I did, you know, and I ended up, uh, I mean, one of the things that I've always been opposed to for myself and, and it, it was the dumbest thing to be thinking at the time is, oh, I don't want to go on any medication because mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself, I, uh, you know, my whole recovery, I've been able to kind of climb out of all this stuff and this depression. I've always had a little bit of depression my whole life or I started calling it just sadness, but yeah. really what it was, was depression. And, you know, I'm thinking, I don't want to go on any medications or nothing, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm abstinent, right? And, um, you know, I fought that and, and I suffered because of that, right? And then, you know, the doctor was, you know, helped me out with that. Said, here, you, know, you got to take these, right? Like, it's a small dose, try it out, see what happens. And it changed my life. Yeah, uh, right. Finally gave me, like, you know, I, I, I'm not like, you know, um, completely like, uh, I still feel, you know, those thoughts, not the suicidal thoughts, but I still get, you know, oh, negative thinking and stuff, but it's not overwhelming anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was a it was a scary scary time in my life, you know, because I did spend a little bit of time, you know, in hospital things like that, right, and trying to trying to work through this, right, and not knowing if, you know, where I was going from there, thinking, oh man, maybe I'm going to lose my job, like things like that, eh? right. all coming through my mind, but uh, you know, it turned out it turned out okay, right, once I started getting on medication and and getting back into um, you know recovery and doing more, things started coming coming together, but you know. Yeah, and I think a lot of the times we don't talk about medication ever being dudes, right? Like I can count on one hand how many of my friends outside of this room, you know, that I know they would openly talk about medication that they're on. Right. It's just like, I'd rather talk about addiction and that I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic, but I'm not going to tell you I have depression and I'm on medication or, you know, you have bipolar and you're on medication for that or whatever it is, right? That's almost the stigma around that is just as bad as addiction mm -hmm. for sure. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, the, the point that we've made just amongst our own personal conversations, as well as conversations with some of the professionals is, is, you know, at, at no point are any of us denying the importance of professional outside help, but aside from addiction, you know, people need counseling, they need medical advice, they need all of these things and they need, you know, whether, whether it's, it's antipsychotics, antidepressants, like, you know, those, those are very real Absolutely. chemical imbalances and nobody's denying that. I think the, the angle that we come at it from is in order to be able to tell what's real and what's not, we at least need to remove the booze and alcohol from right. the equation and then, and then let's see what's left after that. Because a lot of the times a portion, if not all of those symptoms will go away, but a lot of times they don't. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so there are still absolutely issues that need to be addressed in sobriety, but you can't even tell reality from, from not, if you're not at least in a sober state, right? Well, that's right. 
Because I mean, I can, I can imagine. Well, I still remember some of the delusions I had while in active use. Right? I mean, for a time when I was still in the patch, I remember driving, like you know, spending twelve hours a day in a Kenworth with my thoughts was a terrible place for me. Right? And by the end of that day, I'd call my wife and I'd be like, "Hey, remember that thing you said to me like four and a half years ago? This is what I've decided you really meant by that, and lose my mind about it." Right? And she's like, "What are you talking about?" Wow. And just like the delusions that would bounce around in between my ears. And then once I got to my sobriety, right. And, and, and I got, I, I got there through a lot of darkness, right. Like mm-hmm. much like Ryan's story. I mean, I was suicidal when I stopped using was, is kind of the catalyst for me to get there. And, and part of that situation led me to being on some antipsychotics, antidepressants and, and a lot of stuff just to help get me through that to get to sobriety. Right. And it was a tool that was one of the tools in my toolbox. I think that helped Mm -hmm. me get to where I am and without it, I don't know that I would have gotten through the darkness to even have the opportunity. So it's kind of, there's absolutely a place for it. And I think we need to do a better job of talking about it and acknowledging it. Yeah. And I think like we talked about it, uh, taking medicine or, or, something for um, mental health or your shoulder surgery, right? To have pain meds or whatever, whatever the case is, right? Like when I went through my cancer, um, they wanted to take a bone marrow biopsy mm-hmm. and I was like, no drugs. Mm-hmm. I don't want it, right? I wanted, didn't want any mind altering uh, drugs to, to be involved with, with my mind, right? So for sure. I think that with the mental health piece also, um, it's okay. We, we have to talk about it more, right? Because it is okay. Even now, after 16 years, I don't want to take anything mm-hmm. because I don't want to change my, my state of mind mm-hmm. or take pain pills after shoulder surgery or anything because of the addiction piece, right? I don't want to go back there, right? right? So that's it, it, the fear of, I guess, is where I'm at with that. So yeah. I know in addiction, like my, um, you know, opiates for, for 10 years. So I was very apathetic to to everything so you know i didn't want to get back to that spot where i where i wasn't feeling anything you know that, that's one of my biggest fears that's uh, you know i i think it's a gift sometimes that we do feel negative right and like you know how would we know you know mm. what, what's good if we didn't know what was bad right and um it's good to feel that kind of stuff right and, I did, and that was one of my fears with, with taking an antidepressant was oh you know i I'd just be, it'd be this artificial state, you know, and turns out I was totally wrong. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I know I can relate to that too, because I had depression for years, but I never once thought it was depression, kind of like what you're talking about. This was prior to recovery. And, you know, I always thought depression was something to be ashamed of. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm just having a rough day or whatever, right? Things aren't going my way, poor me type thing. And that went on for years and I drank and I used and I, that's how I coped with everything. And it wasn't until I got into recovery, I went to treatment the second time and, you know, I was open and willing to try anything to turn my life around. And, mm-hmm. and I went and saw a doctor within two weeks of going to treatment and he said, dude, like you definitely have depression. And I'm like, really? There's no way I'm buying that, but I'm open to trying something. So he prescribed me some pills. I went on those. And that's the big piece for me is that I went on those for about three months or something like that. I can't remember for sure, but they didn't seem to do anything. And and I had to wrap my brain around that piece. Like it, one pill isn't going to be the solving agent for every person, right? So it took me three months to get on that pill, recognize it's not doing much. Let's switch. 
So as the recipe has to be switched up and it took another three or four months before that one started to actively work. And, uh, you know, six years later, fast forward, here I am today, still on that one pill every morning and right. I take them wherever I go. And it's just a common thing that I do now. I don't know if I need them anymore, but I know, uh, they're not hurting my life anyway. Right now it's, it's not impacting me negatively. So I just keep taking them. Yeah. For sure. I, I remember we had that conversation. Absolutely. I was antidepressants. Yeah. And I had no idea that you were, you were taking them. That was kind of a, a big thing for me when I found out like, you know, other professionals that I work with and, and my friends are all, you know, lots of people are on those, right? And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, so that really, because in my own mind, I mean, still, again, that not believing everything you think is really important because <laughs> in my own mind, I'm, I'm thinking like, no, you know, I, I don't want something that's going to alter me, you know, and. And then I also didn't want to admit that, you know, I had some mental health concerns. I didn't want to certainly admit that I was feeling suicidal. Right? Yeah. Um, especially, you know, working in the industry that we work in, right? I was just thinking, oh man, like, how can I go to work and face people feeling like this, right? And, For sure. You know, but, uh, you know, I, I've, I've since learned, like, you know, there's a lot of people in our profession too that are, that are, you know, have a lot of mental health issues and are, you know, I've worked those out. I've been through all that and and have been where I've been, so. Yeah, I think, you know, getting to know all the people that come on this podcast, all of us have something going on, right? It's addiction, mental health, combination of both, you name it. It's usually enmeshed one way or another. Mm -hmm. And by people coming on from all walks of life, like yourself, you talk about being a professional and myself and Rick and Nathan, you guys are professionals in your own right. And we're all here to talk about these things because how do we normalize this if, you know, it's just thought of as that guy over there has depression or that guy's got some right. real mental health challenges. It's like that normalizing, reframing what this looks like because it's just normal people. It's absolutely normal, yeah. yeah. And instead of looking at it like, yeah, it's just, you know, we're unique. You know, I think that's that old <laughs> that old thinking, terminal uniqueness. We, we never run into anyone like that, do we? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> just, just every second phone call I get. Absolutely. You're so. not like me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, if only you knew what I was actually thinking. Yeah. 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 Sure. Well, the mental health piece is a huge part. I, I totally agree with what you said earlier, Rick, about how, you know, until you get some stability and some clean time behind you, some sobriety, it's really hard to distinguish between those two. Like when I was actively using hard stimulants, yeah. man, I could have checked every box for every mental health issue out there day to day. I could have checked off three this day, four the next day, because I was paranoid schizophrenic all the time <laughs> yeah. until I removed that stimulant and gave myself that 60, 90 days, not just, you know, a trip through detox, but I needed three months to get let that fog really clear and get my thoughts going again. And at that point, my brain was just barely starting to repair itself. Yeah. So yeah, that mental health piece is huge. And, you know, I see it with people that I work with too, right? Like uh, some of the participants, uh, they, you know, taking them to see doctors and stuff and, and they're using heavy and, and these guys, they're getting diagnosed with all sorts of stuff oh. and i'm thinking to myself man how can you label these guys like this right and you know when when they're when they're using like take away the drugs first take see what happens but i mean get labeled with all sorts of things before you know before you're even sober long enough to to understand what was going on right for sure and we talk about that lots is you know it's on on paper and to sit here and say it into a microphone take away those drugs that's easy yeah try doing it in real life right where if you want to get the right diagnosis and you know you gotta get some stability get some recovery get some clean time behind you in order to do that 
and then we can prescribe you the right medication. Well, a lot of the individuals we work with and come across, they're using those narcotics or that alcohol or whatever as their self-medicating coping skill. So try to take that away from somebody without something to replace it. It's such a revolving door. It's really hard. Yeah. Well, in addition, just, you know, in some of the passing conversations we've had with professionals, whether it's social workers or or addiction counselors, there seems to be a, a, a hiccup in the system too. And I'm not here to talk ill of the system, but I mean, we can't identify, we can't work on it if we don't acknowledge some of the issues, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the ones that I hear fairly <clears throat> consistent, consistently is certain agencies won't be able to help you. And like, it's just the order of operations for things yeah. are, are sometimes skewed, right? Mm-hmm. We can't help you with housing unless you get clean. Right. Well, you, we can't get you into the hospital for to help with your mental health until you get clean. And it's, everything's so intertwined mm-hmm. that sometimes, you know, even reaching out for help, you you get you get over you get pushed aside yeah. right because like you, this this needs to be okay before we can deal with that right and it's like well <clears throat> how do we deal with that unless we deal with this right 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 and i don't know if i'm articulating that right i'm sure both of you can oh, speak to that yeah, better yeah. than i can but i think yeah you're absolutely right um I mean, we with the housing piece. I, I know with with our programs, you know, there isn't any kind of requirement that you you have to be clean or anything like that. We'll you know we'll look at housing you no matter what your issue is, right? But what I'm seeing is like, yeah, a lot of people are the resources just aren't the proper resources are just aren't there for for them, right? Like you can't you know you can't stick someone that's you know using meth daily and you know all the I've been homeless for quite a long time and has all these friends, big friend group and all that. You can't stick them in a place and leave them there. You know, you got to have that support in place and you can't even stick them in a regular kind of rental. Yeah. Right. It's like, we don't have a lot of the proper rentals here, the proper, you know, accommodations for, for individuals that have a lot of issues going on. Right. Because I mean, you know, you stick someone into a house and that's, that's using meth regularly, you know, that, that place can get destroyed. Landlords piss off landlords, piss off neighbors, this and that. Mm-hmm. People coming and going. Um, and it, it, we see it all the time, right? Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, in or, in to make that even more difficult, that whole situation, is there's nowhere that we can send people when they want the help. Um, or, you, you know, it's like that mandated piece too, right? There's nowhere you can send somebody who is in active addiction where they can keep them locked up against their will. Right. Right. There's no facility no. like that. You can't take away people's rights. No, that's no. right. So that's the piece, right? I, I am fully Which on board with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. But I'm fully on board with, um, you know, opening up more treatment centers and all these things. But with that piece, you know, if somebody, and I hear it all the time, well, they need to go to treatment and fix themselves. Well, nine times out of 10, if you don't want to be there, you sure you'll show up there, but you walk out the door the same day or the next day. And it's just impossible to, to get somebody to where they need to be if they don't really acknowledge that they need to be there quite yet. Right. Right. And I think that goes with that homelessness piece we talked about. We talk about this all the time and this will be like a red button topic in medicine hat, but how medicine hat solved homelessness a few years ago. (laughs) And I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too long, but a lot of people, I hear that and they, oh, that's fake news, this and that. But, you know, the part that really jumps out at me is after working in this industry long enough, you can't house somebody who doesn't want to be housed. Exactly. Yeah. They choose. Exactly there's some right. people out there that choose to live homeless. And there's some people that they've 
been through every motel in Medicine Hat. They've been through every landlord, and we just got nowhere to put them at yeah. this point, right? Like, we're just trying to keep them alive, you know, tr- trying to make sure they're okay in the meantime and until they're ready to, mm-hmm. you know, for the help that's out there. And, you know, a lot of times those windows aren't there um, when they do want help, <laughs> right? Like, sometimes it takes a little bit too long to get into detox or treatment and stuff, right? Because, uh, you know how it is. If if someone wants to get help, it's like grab them while they're while, while they want it, right? For sure. Don't make them wait. You know, three four weeks. You know, because that's going to change. Well, and that's the piece we talk about at OCJ lots is to fill that that window when it's open and somebody reaches out. We've all been there. Yeah. That window closes so quickly. I know in my own story when I thought I needed help, it was a bit too late already. Yeah. Right. So, and working in this industry, working with other addicts who are suffering, you know, when they say they're man, I think I need some help. Somebody better be there to help them because that window is going to close the way our brains work. You know, it could be within half an hour or an hour, maybe a day, whatever it is. They're like, nah, maybe I'm okay. I don't need this. I got this. Right. And away they go for another six months or whatever. Right. And that's what I like about what you guys are doing. Right. Is, is you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, work with that. Right. Mm-hmm. Trying to be there for people when they want the help in the moment, you know, for sure. And when Not, you say you guys, that includes you too, but uh, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Like I have a close close friend that uh, opioid addiction right now, right? And he's he's on his way to uh, detox for three weeks, but then it's a three month gap before he can get into treatment. Right, right. So how how do we support him for three months to stay to clean from opioids? Right, right. So that's a that's what blows my mind within the system. You two would know you know more on how that works, but. We need we need more action quicker to help more people out, right? And and the three month gap, well, the odds are I'm gonna say pretty slim for him to overcome this, right? So for sure. Yeah, it's by no means impossible, but it's no. it definitely is challenging at that oh, point, right? Absolutely. To that's that's a big piece, right? Is that seamless transition that just seems to be very segmented mm-hmm. currently. Right. With, you know, system capacity i guess is the easiest way to put it right for sure stuff like that always comes down to at the end of the day comes down to funding i think a lot of times right right it's great ideas that everybody has in place and we want to have you know more seamless transitional housing and this and that but man it comes down to to funding and access right what that looks like and that's i don't know if that'll ever that piece will ever get solved but i know we're got some ideas yeah i think it (laughs) takes some advocacy right because if you know, and, and not to say that I like I can't I can't say that I don't know this hasn't been done. I'm sure I'm sure there's agencies and individuals that have done, but to like really calculate the cost of addiction and mental health on even from you know <clears throat> we can all sit here and talk about funding, but like ultimately we all know that's the provincial government. Yeah. Right? right. Provincial and federal government. Right. And not to speak ill about it, we we speak with the minister's office fairly regularly and, and they are very passionate and they are very <clears throat> engaged and they are trying to support this, but you know, if if you can get if you can get the math, if you can get the math to show them numbers, right? Take the emotion out of it, take the take all all of the emotional responses and and, and opinions, and and just base it straight on math. Right. Here's the cost of mental health and addiction as a taxpayer and homelessness too. and and homelessness, right? Which <clears throat> sometimes coincides, sometimes doesn't, but right. there's usually elements of to lead to homelessness. Um. And what, what the cost as a taxpayer that is versus, 
you know, between the policing, the healthcare, the mm-hmm. public housing, all of the different agencies that need to get involved to try and support that problem <clears throat> versus applying a fraction of that budget to early intervention, to support, to, to getting people to not require those other agencies. I can't say for sure, but I'm willing to bet that that would be a net gain for the taxpayer. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree. With, with the homelessness, I mean, I think I'm pretty sure that's how they were able to, to sell the, sell the government on it. It was just showing them dollar and cents. Cause that's something that we do track is emergency visits. How many, you know, police interactions, all that kind of stuff is being tracked and we're able to show, you know, to, to the funders or to the, to the government, you know, um, where those savings are. For sure. Yeah. And I know working in that industry as well, right? It's, it's a lot easier to work with somebody who's housed than it is to work with somebody who's homeless. Right. So that piece there is, is, you know, and that's part of why my role in the community that as a professional came about was, you know, to cut down on the almost frivolous use of emergency services. And it's, you know, individuals that are, you know, in highly addicted situations or, you know, the police are being called a lot. The EMS is called a lot and this and that, right? Whereas now they, you know, not every time, but a lot of the times I can go there instead of, you know, having EMS there, police there and try to interact with them prior to engaging those services so that that's, yeah not to say that you still don't need to escalate that but at least oh. it's an, it's a buffer yeah right for sure and and even saying that right there's only a handful of people doing that in this community and you know i hear it all the time that there aren't enough housing workers there aren't enough addiction workers there aren't enough these people out there to help right and right. and i mean that's just something another thing we're trying to do here is is be that extra person or those extra 10 people or whatever right that Thank goodness there's enough people out there who have, you know, that empathetic way about them that they just want to help walk with somebody. Absolutely. And that's what's really helping fuel OCJ for sure. Like, in my opinion, I think you need um, different solutions, right? You can't just, it's not a one size fits all for everybody, right? We need to look at, you know, you know, what what else do we need? What else? What else? What else? Right? Like, this isn't working. Let's try this, right? Like, you know, recently they put smart recovery into play, which is great. You yeah. know, I, I know, you know, lots of people that don't get anything out of 12 step stuff and that's fine. You know, so they go to smart recovery or, you know, just to a counselor or whatever. Right. Or, you know, that's where I'm kind of, I get a little frustrated, you know, with this whole idea with the harm reduction stuff, you know, and, and saying like no to harm reduction, but you know, we, we need that as an approach as well, because how else are we going to reach individuals that are, that are still suffering or still on the streets that are still not at that stage <clears throat> where they want to stop. Right. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's the piece we talk about lots here, right? We're we, at OCJ, we actively work with people who are almost in that action phase of, of change, right? Or the, the contemplation, they're ready to make a change. They are starting to recognize that their life's going sideways and they're reaching out to us. And that's, you know, that's where a lot of the individuals we come across are coming from. Right. But I do agree with that other approach working in that, in this industry and seeing the, you know, the mental capacity challenges that are out there after so it's such long prolonged active addiction yeah. and, the, and the mental health untreated mental health and addiction issues you know a lot of people cognitively aren't able to understand the 12-step program no, or exactly or, right and we have to keep them alive long enough to get there i firmly believe in through my experience the 12-step program is it's magic it worked for me yeah right but i had a lot of faculties that a lot of the individuals don't have that when they, you know, finally reached out for help or. Right. So it's tough to wrap your brain around the, the concept of recovery if you aren't quite there yet. Right. Right. Yeah. Like we were saying before, it's, it looks different for everybody, right? Well, I think 
one thing that I think we all acknowledge, right, is is what's familiar is what's comfortable. Yeah. I think that's what kept us out as long as we were out. Yep. I think that's what keeps people using as long as it, because it's as shitty as it might be, if it's familiar, it's comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. The fear of the unknown is what prevents people from changing, yep. whether it's drinking, whether it's drugs, whether it's homelessness, even for that matter, right? I think there's a lot of people that that's, that's what they know. That's what's comfortable. Right. So that's as bad as the situation might be comfortable, familiar is comfortable, right? And, and to try and push somebody out of that against their will, right? you're not going to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. And you're looking at like a community too. So sometimes, you know, you're taking someone out of their community as, you know, as harmful as their community or we think their community is, you know, we're, we're taking them out of that, putting them in a home, you know, and, and expecting them to abide by a lease and, and, and be like, okay, with not having people over and, and not mm-hmm. socializing, you know, and, and doing what they normally do. Right. And it just doesn't work. Well, especially if that's just the, if, if the solution ends there, right. I mean, you're as toxic as their support structure might be, it is ultimately a support structure yeah. and you p- remove them from that equation and deny them the support structure. If you don't backfill that with something, right. You can't really expect them to succeed. Right. So it's, I don't know what I'm hearing is like, we need to somehow create a more holistic approach to everything. Right. But like, that's a lot of different ministries. That's a lot of different agencies. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort, but it's got to start somewhere. Yeah. Right. And even if it's just in these conversations and getting almost these back channels with different agencies and, and, and people covertly plotting for people's success. Right. For sure. And, uh, like, I know we make a lot of, phone calls to different agencies, but not necessarily like the front office. We are calling specific individuals that we know within that mm-hmm. agency going, Hey, we got a situation. Can you help us out? And, and not necessarily circumvent the system, but see what we can do. Right. Yeah. And it's, I like the word leverage. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Right. <laughs> We're leveraging people. Yeah. In a yeah. good way. For sure. And, and ultimately with the goal of support, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, and it's not, and that's the thing. If we keep siloing, I think, all of these support systems, whether it's housing, whether it's addiction, whether it's, you know, ongoing physical, like actual medical support with through, you know, medications, whether it be antipsychotics, antidepressants, if we're, if we're just siloing solutions, I think we're destined to fail if we don't solve the more Absolutely. holistic situation, right? Yeah, for sure. And I, and I go back to, you know, the only reason that we do these things is uh, because we we firmly believe in helping someone else, right? Mm-hmm. We've all been there at the end of that road and it was dark and it was lonely and it was gross. Mm-hmm. And if we can help somebody not be, you know, prolong that agony of waiting for, you know, an entry date to treatment or right. waiting for help at housing or whatever that looks like, right? right. Um, if we can fill that gap and try to leverage, you know, through our network that we've created and and get somebody a little bit faster into where they have to go, that's, you know, a success right there. And that's because at the end of the day, when I was in that state, that window closed so quickly that I tried to take my life. Yeah. And I don't want to see anyone else that I'm working with end up there because that's a gross spot to be. Yeah. And I think a big piece of that too is, is getting people, you know, once they're connected, once they're starting to get on, you know, that road, that path to, to, to good health and, you know, getting them to, to help out, right. Getting them to be of service and stuff. I, I think that's 
huge. I remember, you know, <clears throat> when I first got clean, you know, and I, um, I was in that in-between stage where I had no friends, right? I, I still hadn't made any friends. <clears throat> sorry. Still hadn't made, made any friends in, you know, in recovery and, mm -hmm. and I ditched all my other friends, right? And, you know, still in that kind of selfish mode, right? And, um, you know, a guy takes me aside and, and, and starts getting me to help out. <clears throat> and I started feeling, you know, that, that connection with other people started feeling like I belong somewhere, started feeling like, you know, this is nice doing something for somebody else. Right. Yeah. Cause I, in my opinion, addiction is the most selfish thing I could have done and it could be, you know, it's a, it's a, the most selfish state. Right. For sure. And, and I, and I know from my own experience that I can still go back to that selfishness without any kind of drug at all. Right. And it's almost extreme selfishness where it's just me, 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 me. And being part of something, you know, get, gets me outside of myself and, and how important that was to finally feel like I have, you know, a community and I'm part of something, right? Yeah. And purpose. Uh, I think purpose. Pur purpose exactly. Right? That's what it is. It's like, I know, I know for me, my, my demons live in guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. That's where my demons are. And, and unless I can take my experiences, like if I just look at my experience, it's really easy to fall into guilt and shame. Right. Cause like I did some terrible, terrible things to it. Yes. People, yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> to to a lot of people I love, to a lot of people I still love, and and I mean, you know, and they'll they're completely entitled to feel the way they do about me because I did some terrible things. But if I, the only way I get out of that darkness is to you see that experience as a tool to help somebody else. Absolutely, and it needs to have a purpose, and that purpose is to allow me to connect with somebody that might have a similar experience. Right. And it wasn't until I could look at it through that lens. And I've talked about this many times, right? I, I sought a lot of professional and spiritual help mm -hmm. and guidance from, from, from psychology, from, you know, the medical community to the religious community, everybody. And everybody came back to, you got to forgive yourself before you can move on. And every single one of those individuals, I asked, okay, how do I do that? Not one of them could actually answer it. And I found that solution for me in 12-step by and I and I can't put my finger on when it happened. It wasn't mm -hmm. like a light bulb moment, right? But just by sharing my experience and being there to support other people based on my experience, it gave it purpose. Right. I you know, not to say that I don't I don't know if regret's the right word. You know, I did a lot of bad things that I wish I could undo, but at the same token, I wouldn't be the man I am today had I not done them. I wouldn't be in the position I'm in today to help other people had I not done them. Right. So there needs to be that purpose for me. And I think that's, if I'm not putting words in your mouth, exactly what it's you're exactly talking what about, I'm talking right? About, it's just yeah. purpose. And I think that's what propels you out of that darkness. Because yeah. if you're left alone in your thoughts with no purpose. It's a scary place to be. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you're talking about that, uh, forgiving yourself, you know, and uh, the big, a big piece of that for me was... Uh, that helped me with that was learning to forgive other people, right? Learning to let those resentments go and to, to really, really examine those resentments, right? Like that was, that was huge. And, and that was the road for me is I, I had to start forgiving other people and letting things go. So we, we chuckle me and Rick, cause I'm, I'm right there on, on my 12 step tip five here. So ah, nice. we're, we're working on that, right? And just go back to step four, right? Mine's worthlessness and fear mm -hmm. is like, I'm sure I've seen it, right? Bing, bing, bing. Worthlessness, fear, right? Of of not being, and, and finally getting back into uh, the program and being involved and, and being of service and 
and seeing there's still a lot of people out there that are suffering, right? Mm-hmm. That's given me some purpose, you know, my, my light at the end of the tunnel saying, Hey, Nathan, like just continue on this path, help people, you know, be a good person and, and whatever, whatever your purpose is, I, I'm not trying to find it today. Mm-hmm. I'm just letting it roll, right? right? Let, let it go. So, and that's, that's one thing I did. I, I, I removed myself. I started thinking for myself, removed myself from the program, started living life and just loving my wife and my kids for a decade. And then the pandemic and yeah. everything happened, right? Same, similar to you, right, Mark? And, and got away from the program and, and now I'm back and I feel somewhat whole again, right? I don't have the sadness and the worthlessness, peace every day. Yeah, sure, it creeps in, right? When yeah. I, you know, it, it, I, I'm human, right? So sure. it, it creeps in, but am I pissed off when I miss a Saturday morning? Absolutely. I want to be there. I want to see those people. I want to hear what they have to say, right? I want to give back. So that's we're, that's a question to you, Mark. Have have you been involved in the program continually or did you take a break? I, I've never really taken a, a long break. Yeah. I, I know when I was in school, like, so, you know, once I, once I got into the program, you know, and, and felt that joy, I started feeling from, you know, some of that 12 sure. step work and yeah. stuff, right? I thought, you know, this is, this is something I want to do for yeah. the rest of my life. Right. So. You know, I waited about three years and, and that's when I went back to school and eventually got a degree in social work. And during that time while I was in school, it, it became pretty, um, pretty demanding school. Did. Sure. So there was, a, there was like, I wasn't as involved. I was uh, kind of sporadic meetings here and there and, and doing that kind of thing, right? Never, n- never committing to one, but um, I was still, you know, still had a yeah, sponsor, sure. someone I was talking to regularly, people in the program, but just you know, step back a little bit from, from, uh, some of the service positions and stuff like that within the fellowship, right? But. I think a big thing to, to talk about, I know we, we, we talk about it a lot. I feel like we say that a lot. We talk about it a lot. <laughs> we talk a lot. <laughs> um, but the analogy that I love and to anybody out there who is familiar with the 12 steps and the fellowships and whichever one you're in, um, the analogy I like a lot is is that of going to the gym mm-hmm. you can show up to the gym as many times as you want but it, you aren't going to get the results from it and there's a lot of people that have tried different 12-step programs and they say well it didn't work it's you know i don't like it and when you drill down you're like well what'd you do it's like well i went to meetings it's like okay well if you go to the gym but you don't actually do anything are you going to get a result well no that would be stupid <laughs> Well, no different than the, than the, than our programs, right? right. You, you got to do some heavy lifting to get any of the results. And that heavy lifting, you want the results, it comes from helping other people, right. being of service, right? Showing up, you're not going to get this through osmosis. You're not going to improve your quality of life. You're, there's a direct correlation between helping other people and the quality of sobriety. Mm-hmm. And, and I will argue that till the day I die. And I've seen it time and time again. And uh, I was reading a a paper that was written, I think it was like Harvard or one of the Ivy League school it, it did a study and it was the study on the success of 12-step programs. And it was like abysmal statistics. It was like 12% for people that attended meetings. And then it jumped dramatically to like 50% for people that attended meetings and did the step work with a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Jumped to like almost 50%. But then it jumped again to like 80% of long-term sobriety. And I think their measure of long-term sobriety was 24 months or more. It jumped to like 80% more 
by people who attend meetings, have done the work, and sponsor other people. Mm-hmm. That was the, like that was the statistic <clears throat> that jumped everything, right? right? And and for me, it's accountability, right? Mm-hmm. If it, I can't do the things I do if I know I'm full of shit and not doing it myself, right. right? It just adds back to that dishonesty character defect, right? I got to walk the walk and it's easy for me to sometimes to beat myself up and go, I'm a fraud because I didn't do as much as I should have in my head and, and my natural place is to beat the shit out of myself. It's where I go. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to stay there. Just get back, get, get going again, go help somebody, go find somebody to help. And I know for me personally, like since all this OCJ, like the best sobriety, the best I've ever felt in my entire life has been in the last six months since we've started this thing that we're doing and, and just really committing to helping other people as a way of life, not as a recreational hobby, right? Not as when, not because for a long time in, in sobriety for me, it was, it was still selfish, right? I would feel like shit. I would talk to my sponsor and be like, well, go help somebody. And the only, my only motivation for helping somebody else was so that I felt better. And once I shifted that and went, I'm just going to keep doing it, regardless of how I feel today, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I didn't fall back into those lows anymore, right? I just kind of, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, we're all human. We're all going to go up and down a bit, but my lows weren't as low and I didn't stay as long, Yeah, right? And it, it the quality of life that I've had has just exponentially improved. Right. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the crazy piece about this, right? Is Damien says it to me all the time. We don't get well and help people. We get well by helping people, right? And it, it, it it makes sense. It's a very simple concept of all we're doing is I can't keep what I have unless I give it away. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm going to chase people down or do anything. That just means if, if you want what we have mm-hmm. as, as a society, as a group, right, that we'll invest just as much time and effort in, into your recovery as you're willing to do, right? And that's the, I think that's the piece for, for a lot of people at the beginning. And we've seen it, I've seen it since I've gotten back into the program, right, is a lot of people want to like, hey, you know, reach out and like, hey, I like what you have, like, I'll kind of touch it for a bit. But now they're, they're removing themselves because they're, whatever reasons, they're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Right. So as long as we continue on this path and, and Mark, yeah. the, the work you do and Ryan, right. OCJ, right. As long as you continue this piece, a lot more people, this is reaching more people <laughs> to say, Hey, it's okay. We can talk about it. There's, there's avenues to, to reach out. So I just keep showing up, keep showing yeah. up. Yeah. That was the. For sure. And saying yes to the next right thing. We say that all the time. Right. And that's what's got me to today, six years in recovery. And it's by being open and willing and honest. And those have, I talk about that lots. Those are my three foundational pieces to my recovery is open-minded and willingness. If I lose those two things, the honesty goes right behind it. And then I'm back out using. So Mm -hmm. by saying yes to the next right thing, it's just been an amazing gift. Yeah. I think like I, I've, I'm lucky enough to have the perspective of what, life looks like with no program with a little bit of program with kind of a half-assed program and really committed mm-hmm. and the, you know we, one of the lines in some of our literature is we try to find an easier softer way <laughs> all <laughs> and, of them <laughs> yeah. and it is fully committing to this thing that is the easiest way to live right is just being a good human being 
And, and, you know, I think a big thing that you talked about there, Nathan was, you know, our, our willingness to support other people, but at the same time, the accountability that comes with that, we're, we're not going to do this for anybody. And I think mm-hmm. you guys as professionals know that more than anybody, right? You can't do this for anybody else. Mm-hmm. We can absolutely support them and match their effort and, and help them. Right. But we can't chase anybody, right? And and sometimes the catalyst for that fundamental change is in fact enough pain. And it's unfortunate that sometimes you got to look at a guy and go, well, I guess you just haven't suffered enough yet. And right. I hope you live long enough to get there. Yeah. But some people do and some people don't. And, and it's just... It, it takes that fundamental commitment to change. Yeah. And, and like Rick, you're, Rick's my sponsor. So Rick, one big piece when Rick said, well, after you're done your 12 steps, you'll, you'll be a sponsor, right? And the, the big thing is, um, I get emotionally attached to somebody because I see mm-hmm. them suffering and I want, I want them to be free of, of that suffering. Right. And he's like, you, you can't emotionally attach yourself because you can't bask in their success or then you have to suffer when they falter. Right. So that's a, that's a big piece in this recovery program is, you know, we're not do I'm not doing it for them to, to make sure they get sober or live a happy life. That's on them. Mm -hmm. Right. That's on me. Rick, Rick could care less. I'm sure if I got happier or did my 12 steps, he's, he's like, here's a pathway forward. If you're willing to do these steps, there's, there's freedom at the end of it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm slowly working through them, <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm at the tough steps right now. Right. So it's uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of fear going into these steps, but I, I know with Rick and, and the support group I have, For I sure. call him anytime, Ryan, Mark, now you're in my support group too. So sure. Absolutely. Uh, that, that's what it's about growing your, growing the base of friends and support group for, for this program. So. Yeah, for sure. And I think that PC, well, we've talked about it lots today is matching someone's effort, right? And Mark and I, we both know this from being in the industry is that if, if we could fix this for somebody, we'd both be unemployed. Absolutely. The whole industry sure. wouldn't be needed anymore. Right. And, uh, for me, I had to really, what you just said, Nathan, about becoming emotionally invested in people. I had really had to look at that the first year I got into this industry. And cause for me, success in, you know, coming out of addiction was abstinence based recovery for me. Mm-hmm. In my experience, that was what success looked like. Right. And I, when we started tracking data in this role that I'm in now, we had to really reframe what success was going to be. There, right. It wasn't just a number we could put, okay, recovery, recovery. Nope. Right. Nope. Nope. We had to start looking at it differently because if we were measuring that as a measuring stick for success, man, we were failing yeah. epically. Absolutely. <laughs> so it was like, okay, so how many times is this person connecting this week? That's success. Right. And eventually getting them in touch with, you know, all these other resources when they become willing and, that's the struggle I have, right? It's, I know the basis of the program and what that looks like. And then I have the training behind it for an addiction counselor and the motivational interviewing and all this stuff, right? And lots of times I just want to grab people by the shoulders and give them a shake and say, Hey, come on, let's fucking do this. Right. right. But you can't really do that. So that's where your tools come in and your training and your motivational interview. you got to get somebody motivated to make that step into the next stage of change. And it gets so frustrating at times Absolutely. because we know Nine times out of 10, they're their own worst enemy. Yeah. They're in the way of their own progress and trying to motivate them to recognize that and get them out of their own way to take this next step is, oh my goodness, that gets frustrating, but it's worth it when you finally get there. Yeah, that's for sure. And that recovery is, you know, for someone that's homeless, looks a little bit different too. It's, 
you know, it's it's recovering the stuff you lost because of your homelessness. So you're getting your home back, right? You're you're you know you're getting some of the, those material stuff back, right? You're getting back into society. It doesn't necessarily mean that you stop using, <clears throat> stop drinking, right? For sure. It just means it's more like, oh, I'm integrating back into society a little bit better today than I was yesterday. Right? Yeah. That's one thing work starting to work in this profession has showed me that there's a lot of different levels to this. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not just put somebody in a home and now they're not homeless anymore. No. Put somebody in a 12-step meeting and now they're going to be in recovery. There's a lot of lessons that go into it and a lot of different levels. And it's a, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. It's a huge process. But like we talked about earlier, people are comfortable where they're at, right? Whether it's painful, whether it's dark, if they've been there long enough, that's comfort for them. And that's where, you know, they've learned the skills to survive in that atmosphere. And anything outside of that is going to be very terrifying for them. So trying to gradually get them into that, that's where we do our professional work. But, oh boy, I could go on for hours on this topic. (laughs) You know, with this the stream of drugs that are out there it's it's, oh it's just gosh. a lot of it it's about keeping people alive until we can you know until they're ready to for something different right it's that's what we we're doing lots of work that way right and, mm-hmm. and in my professional life same as you mark you know the harm reduction piece is a big piece of keeping people alive for sure i completely understand that and especially with the like you just talked about the toxicity of the drugs that are out there now mm-hmm. and the unknown drugs that are floating in the community Nowadays, it's one and done. You have a chance of dying every time you pick up a drug, yeah. in my opinion. Yep. So the longer people are floating around out in that kind of uh, situation, the more chance they have of never getting into recovery. But then that's a double-edged sword, right? If we don't do something on that harm reduction side, people are going to just run wild on street drugs, and who knows how many people are going to tip over and pass away, right? It's such a hard concept to find the middle ground and the balance. Like I get it that we have to have more recovery beds. We have to have all these things in place to get people into recovery. And that's, you know, in the general population, that's the consensus I get feedback on. Well, people need to go to treatment, but like we just spent the last hour talking about, if they're not ready for treatment, it's never going to be a success. No, They're going to walk out the door and leave. Exactly. So it's like, how do we get people to treatment? And that's where all these other pieces fall into play. And I know we could argue this topic for hours, but most of us in this room and in OCJ, like the abstinence-based recovery is what worked for us. Harm yeah. reduction wouldn't work for me. I would have been dead. If somebody told me I can continue using, there's a safer way to use, let's you know, let's keep you alive long enough to get to treatment, I would have ran with that for until <laughs> I passed away. I'm sure I would have. I was really good at lying and manipulating. I would have, If somebody gave me that crack in the door of you can use a little bit, I could have bullshitted that into whatever I wanted, right? And And... And mostly just bullshit of myself. Yeah. Right? And, and, uh, for, yeah, for me, you know, uh, when I, when I got into, especially like when we formed OCJ, you know, the harm reduction was like a four letter word that really offended me. In fact, in, in all honesty, it made me angry. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, cause I looked at it going, you know, how many people are out there dying because they're getting this message that it's okay to use a little bit. And, and ultimately we need to push everybody to abstinence <clears throat> and through, you know, some of the guests we've had, some of the exposure I've had, you know, I've, I've absolutely reframed that and, and when, you know, how many people are dying if we don't do something, right? Mm-hmm. Something's better than nothing. Right. And it's, f- for me, in my brain, abstinence is still the end game goal, but that's not going to happen for everybody, you know, and, and I think. We're naive to think, I, I don't think it's fair to 
to us or to the population and just write everybody else off that isn't ready to get there. No. Yeah. Right. We've, we've got to be willing to baby step our way forward as long as we're moving forward. Um, yeah, I think, you know, we've, we've had plenty of opportunity to have the abstinence versus harm reduction debate. And right. I guess all I'm saying is I'm, I'm moving, I'm sliding on the scale <laughs> a little bit, that. right? I, I know just think like, Good for you. And just think like where we would be if you were to take, you know, if we were using now. Yeah. You know, I'd be dead. Oh, if, me too. I mean, with the drugs out there now, because those were my drugs, right, that yeah. I loved. I, you know, I'd be dead or I'd be, well, maybe not, but still, like, the, there's a good possibility. Yeah. Your right? quality of life would not be as <laughs> yeah. well. No. And I was the same way, right? I was, uh, I was a full-blown addict, right? And, and if I had, you know, a quantity of drugs purchased on a Thursday, thinking that'll get me through till Sunday, those were gone by Friday afternoon. There was no way I was using just enough, you know? So nowadays, if I was still out there using, I'm sure I would be dead because I would have come across that bad dose. And for me, I was the type of addict that it didn't matter where it came from or what it was. If it was there, I was using it. Right. And then I'd go find something better, but I'll just use this in the meantime type thing, right? Even though I know that it's cut with laundry detergent or it's cut with whatever, right? I'm still using it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, if I went down that path, I would be dead. I guarantee it. 100%. I don't think that there's a scenario in the world that, and I, and I talk to people, like, especially people that are reaching out to OCJ and, and newcomers in 12-step, you know, and, and I go, you know, unless your goal is to not use, I can't help you. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know how to use responsibly. I can't help you get there. Because right. if I could, <clears throat> believe me, that's what I'd be doing personally. Right. <laughs> I have never been <laughs> successful at moderation of any kind, right? I, I don't know how to moderate or I would have. For sure. And I think that's the big piece, you know, just kind of piggybacking on what you said is where a lot of the other professionals and a lot of the other agencies come into play. And that's part of this community team and getting a team built for every individual because everyone's different. Mm -hmm. Some people are going to need a psychologist or a psychiatrist, maybe a harm reduction specialist, maybe, you know, a therapist or whatever they're going to need and some peer support. Some other people are just going to need to walk through the doors of a 12 step and they're going to, the light bulb will turn on and they'll get it right. Right. So that's, you know, that's the biggest piece. One of the biggest pieces I've learned in this profession is everybody's unique. Everybody's going to be different and the team is going to look different for every single person. Right. Which has been a, it's been a journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we're getting to that hour. Um, Mark, it's been a pleasure to have you. Do you got any Thanks, closing Mark. comments or, and actually I think like, it, you know, much like every podcast, it feels like we're just getting into the good I stuff. Know. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, please know you're welcome back anytime you want to carry this conversation on. But uh, with that said, is there any closing comments you'd like to share? I uh, hope, uh, I just, you know, I like to talk to people that are, you know, in the social work profession and, you know, service industry, human service industry. And just, you know, you know remember, like, there's, there's help out there for you guys, too. Like, we're kind of the worst at... Um, you know, keep, keep on going, even though, you know, our mental health is not the best, you know, we just keep pushing and pushing ourselves, but we don't have to do that. You know, there's people we can talk to and there's help out there and don't have to be ashamed, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think there's that piece. Once you become a professional that you got this and now you help others. Right. Yeah. And, and we're not supposed to, I, I run into that lots too. And thank God I have this great support network where I can bounce my problems off people and, and sit down and have these one-on-ones with people and, but yeah, we just carry this stress and this this load of, you know, now you're a professional, here's your registration, and now you go help people. Yeah. 
but yeah, we got to remember we're people too. And Absolutely. that's one thing that really stood out for me early in recovery and was, uh, was some of my instructors at the, at the college helped me with that is, you know, when you get into the profession and you're taking people to their first meeting, you're helping people with addiction every day. That's not your recovery. Mm-hmm. Right. And that really had to, I really had to reframe my thinking around that. Oh, I've been to five meetings this week. Well, no, I've taken five people to their first meeting. I haven't gone to a meeting as a recovering addict myself. That's right. I need to keep going for my own recovery. And that's been a huge piece for me. And I'll keep doing this program till the day I die because man, it's been life-changing for me. So right on. Nathan, you got anything to add? I'm just grateful for Mark, Ryan, Rick, um, OCJ in general, right? Having a platform. Uh, where we can talk about this, right? It's uh, yeah. e- even me sitting here. I, I I don't feel worthy of being involved in this conversation, but I feel whole. Oh, r- dude. right, and it, it's amazing. I can see Mark. I, I don't know the guy, but I feel connected with him now, and understanding that hey, man, but what he said, I was just going through the same thing. What was it a month ago? Yeah, right, and and now to see him, it's like wow, a guy, a professional. The guy who deals with this on the daily, he feels the same way. Well, okay, I, I feel a bit better about who I am today, right? So it's pretty grateful for this platform. I, it's amazing. So yeah. I have goosebumps, dude. Yeah. When I first walked in here and saw you here, yeah. Rick told me last night you were going to sit in today. And I just, this is the first time I met you in person, but I for listened sure. to your episode with your brother, with Damien yes. Yes. and with Rick. And you know what? I just instantly knew that we would mm-hmm. all connect with you because- you're, you know the feelings, right? You've yeah, been there. And then when I walk sure. in today and I see you sitting here and then I hear you speak, it's like <laughs> in a month, the growth and how comfortable you've become yeah, with yourself for from sure. listening to you on that podcast. Absolutely. Dude, this is life changing. You're 100% worthy, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. I feel, I feel it today, <laughs> right? But th- there's moments, right? But I, I, I'm, I'm just grateful. It's, totally. it's huge, right? And grateful for this Saturday, what you guys got going on. I'm not trying to... You know, throw it out there. Shameless plug. Yeah, shameless plugs, right? By <laughs> the time you know, this airs, it'll be like four Saturdays <laughs> okay. ago, but that's all right. It's all good. So, no, I'm just grateful. Yeah, I'd like to say thank you to everybody here. I mean, this is, like I said, this this is what makes me not hate myself, right? It's just having this, it's not even make me feel good. It's just make me not feel bad. This is what it takes, right? These conversations and hopefully, hopefully it spurs on other conversations with other individuals and, and we can start talking instead of just hiding in our own basements and suffering alone yeah one maybe one last thing to end on is if anybody out there is listening to these podcasts and you have any questions you have any concerns some comments direct message us on our facebook page send us an email at help at our collective journey.ca if you want to talk to any of us or you want questions answered on this podcast we've talked about this maybe in the future we'll do a a Q&A type session and just feel free to send us anything you want that, you know, you're sitting at home. I know when I was not, you know, in this industry or in involved in OCJ six years ago, I had a hundred questions, but I didn't know where to go to get them answered. So send us whatever you got. Yeah. In addition to on piggyback on that, if you are an industry professional or, or not, or just somebody with some lived experience, anybody like, if you want to come on this episode with us, shoot us, shoot us a message. We'll, we'll find the time. If you've got a message to share, we'll, we'll, we'll hear it. We'll, this platform's for everybody to use, so please feel free to get a hold of us. Uh, with that, I would like to thank Rob and Dave from the Plugged In Media Network for putting up with us as well as they do. And uh, with that, that wraps up another episode of From Darkness to Life with OCJ. Thanks for coming out, guys. The end. 
From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Rick, Ryan, and Damien are here for you. Contact Our Collective Journey on Facebook at Our Collective Journey or on the web at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Hosted by Poncho Parker, produced by Rob Pate, engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Check out this and our other great podcasts at pymedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.